0: What's up, guys? Good to be with you this morning. Would you turn to Philippians chapter 2? We're continuing uh, our series through Philippians. Uh, Up at the Carp Campus, Chris Lazo's teaching there. And uh, we're going through the same text here at Philippians 2. And it's a post-Thanksgiving message, so everyone's moving, turning their Bibles a little bit slower. I walked up the first service, and I was huffing and puffing on three steps. I couldn't... I had to unbutton the first top button of my pants just to start preaching. So we're going to start. Philippians chapter 2, as you turn there, I'm going to open us in prayer and just ask God to bless His Word this morning. Lord, you're here in our midst, God. We we just... uh, We acknowledge that you're the living God. Jesus, you died on the cross to pay for our sin and rose from the grave to defeat the devil, hell, and death. And we receive you into our presence this morning, Lord. We ask that you would please speak to us this morning, God. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to change our will and our desire, and to empower us to obey you. And we ask that you do that this morning. You'd inspire us as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul the Apostle is the author of this letter to uh, this church. It's about 10 years old. Um, They live in an urban environment um, and they're facing some difficult times and facing some inner conflict in their body as a church. So um, Paul writes to them and says, verse 12, Children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, or in other words, I'm going to die. For preaching the gospel to you. I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The theme or the big idea of uh, what Paul is sharing in this part of his letter is uh, joy in gospel obedience. And uh how many people are excited about the word obedience? Like you hear the word obedience, you just think, yeah, I really want to talk about obedience today. It's not one of our favorite words. I was thinking even in terms of, um, as a dad and my two youngest daughters, they're now three and five and they're getting to the place where, um, does anybody have any three-year-old or a five-year-old here? What's the question that they ask the most? Why? Why? I hear why so many times and I I finally start doing what I vowed I would never do is use the answer because I said so, right? I mean you're just like because I said. But usually when I'm not tired of why um, and and I want to actively do this, I try to explain to my daughter. I'm in a place now of explaining to my five-year-old and even my three-year-old who is our most active child um, but probably she's, she's so much fun too, is that I'm not trying to to be a killjoy. I'm not saying that you can or can't do that. I'm asking for your obedience because I have your best interest in mind. I know what's best for you. It's not, it's not good for you to run across the street when trucks are running driving by. I mean, it's not good for you to touch that dog. It might have rabies. I don't know. I, I just I'm kind of kind of neurotic like that, and I'm just maybe a little bit overkill. But for my for my own kids, I'm constantly wanting to explain to them when I'm asking your obedience, I'm not doing it because I'm wanting to kill your joy. And I think that so many times I have I've not wanted to obey God, and maybe you too have chosen to. Take the authority that should be God's and place it on yourself because you believe or we believe that our joy and the holiness of God run two separate ways. You think obeying God is going to fight against what is fulfilling for me. And I saw this particularly as a high school pastor that the mindset of the average student that I had the privilege of pastoring was, if I obey God, I won't be able to do what I'm going to do, what I want to do, what would seem like the most fulfilling direction of my life, the most fulfilling path. Or maybe you have obeyed God and you come here today and you say, you know what, I've tried to obey God and either A, I failed or B, I succeeded. And what happened as a result was uh, conflict and suffering. And Paul, who is in prison while he's writing, possibly going to be put to death as he writes a letter to uh, his church that he has pastored, that he's planted, he tells him, your joy is directly tied to your obedience to God. And he says in verse 17, I'm about to be put to death for having obeyed God, having preached to you, and I want you to share, and I'm glad. I'm glad, I have joy, I have fulfillment, and I want you to share this with me. Basically says, I'm telling you that freedom and joy are ultimately tied to and found in obeying God, who as a loving father desires to lead your life into a place of complete freedom and joy that's lasting, not one that's passing. The question for us for me, as especially as I share this passage, is that I think, I don't want to just talk about this. I, I want to walk away from here and know what it is to obey God. I want new power to obey God. I want to experience joy that comes that's found in obeying Him. I want to know this type of peace. I want to know this true lasting freedom and joy. The question, though, is how? Because I agree with Jesus as I was reading the passage yesterday as he's telling his disciples, just stay here, pray with me, watch. I want you to watch and pray with me because his soul is in anguish as he's about to go to the cross and he says, I want you to watch and pray lest you enter into temptation because the spirit indeed is willing but your flesh is weak. And you know that to be true, Right? And I know that to be true as well. So how do we do this? And Paul gives us a few instructions for what it is to follow Jesus on this path of obedience. And that's kind of the visual image I want you to go to right now. Is that this obedience to God is this path that we walk on. But before we look at that path of gospel obedience, I want to look at a problem. What's the problem of obeying God? We'll look at the path and then we'll look at the problem. First the problem of obedience to God. It's found in this first verse verse 12 when he says I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That v- word salvation Paul's saying talking to these Christians not saying that they're to work for salvation. He doesn't say you work up your salvation or work to keep your salvation. Salvation is a free gift that comes through Jesus Christ because he died to receive all of the penalty of my sin on the cross and rose and conquered death and sin. But the problem is that word salvation there. And it's the problem because there's not only the path of gospel obedience that we follow on. You are on on one of three paths today. You and I are on one of three paths There's two other paths that are equally enticing and that we oftentimes embrace. The first path, of course, is irreligion or hedonism, or basically doing what I want to do. This word obedience is so unpopular today because, for the most part, if I'm doing what I want to do, I don't want to give any authority to anyone. I don't want to give my spiritual authority, much less any other authority for my life, to anyone. And that statement is said somewhat out of ignorance because it's ignorant of the way that the human heart works. Look in uh, verse 14, verse 15. Paul, when he's comparing that of being a child of God to also being, notice what he says, that you may be, I want you to live in a way that you would be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish without blame or tarnish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And that phrase there, crooked, twisted generation, of course, we, we could look and we say, yeah, that's out there. There's immediately an attorney that comes to our mind that says, that's not me. I'm not crooked or twisted. Or we can find somebody else who's even more crooked and more twisted than we are, and we always feel good about ourselves in that way. But what Paul says is the first path that that you can follow apart from gospel obedience is that of irreligion. And that phrase crooked, twisted generation, it has to do with, in, in, uh, it refers back to Deuteronomy when during the days of Israel, God is leading his people and there are those that are worshiping the true and living God and those who trade the authority for God and they give it to... Creation, Or they take it upon themselves. And there's idol worship. As a result, God has a a law that he invokes in, in the first command that says, You shall have no other God before me. Which the breaking of that law subsequently is the leading to every other breaking of every other command. As we worship a creature rather than the creator... We, we serve something that's good, which is what idolatry is. We take a good thing like relationship, community, family, success, occupation, identity. We take these things and we take the good thing that God has given to us, ability. And we exalt it into a God thing. We can do this even with children. We take a good thing, which is a blessing, and we exalt it to that is the thing that now I'm living for. And all of us do this. That's why it's ignorant to say, I'll give my authority to no one. All of us are obeying someone. All of us have given our spiritual authority to someone. Euripides, who is a, a, a Greek playwright, ancient Greek playwright, he's actually the father of uh, the genre romantic comedy, um, who knows something about bondage because subsequently every husband who ever had to sit through a romantic comedy is in bondage after that. He says, uh, we have Netflix, and on our Netflix it came back, Al Abdullah, you like, and it was all of these really cheesy movies that my wife had shown. I said, what are you doing to my whole identity? (laughs) Euripides says, notice he's not a Christian, but he says, no one is truly free. They are a slave either to wealth, fortune, the law, or other people restraining them from acting according to their will. And what Euripides is saying is that don't be ignorant. Every one of us has something that we live for that gives us joy, that gives us a sense of image, whether it's obeying the law really well, or it's our wealth, or it's somebody else, or uh, our some type of fortune. There's something that gives us our emotional integrative center something that drives me something that is my true lord and what paul says that if it's anybody other than the true and living god who is offering you salvation and forgiveness you have placed yourself under a lord that cannot forgive you of sin that cannot ultimately free you that will ultimately drive you to some form of slavery you have a spiritual authority it's not only ignorant of how the heart works, it's also ignorant of how real freedom works. See, when I go to the zoo and I take my daughters to the zoo and I, I'm standing behind the, the glass wall there, I'm not yelling at anybody like, why, 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 I've paid good money to get in here and you're going to leave me behind this cage? I want to get inside and play with the ape. I never say that. I mean, I'm looking behind this glass. I'm perfectly fine with the freedom I have of not being able to enter into his territory and space. Same way with with our own lives. We have restriction, but they're built in by God. There's a way that God has designed and created us so that our lives actually function in real freedom despite there being built in limitations like a father puts for his child. But it's also ignorant of the holiness of God, as he says in verse 12b, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And it's an ignorance of the fact that God is a holy God, God is love. And God is good. And yet Jesus dies on the cross because God is also holy. And for a holy and good God to actually have relationship with you and me, sinful man and woman, God has to pay a penalty and receive all of the judgment that should have been poured out on you on himself. Showing us the holiness of God. Showing us the justice of God. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want you to go and make disciples. But that idea that he says, all authority has been given to me. You can fight and fight that I'm not going to give my authority. I'm not going to give my obedience to anyone. This is my life. I'll live it how I will. Jesus said, it's just the way that the human heart works It's just the way that freedom work. It's the way that love relationships work. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. He who obeys my word, it is that loves me. And my father and I will come to him. We'll make our home with him. We'll make ourselves known to him. True relationship, that's how you know one another. You make yourself known to one another. It happens through loving, trusting relationship. Now the second path that... We find ourselves on oftentimes is not just irreligion, but it's also religion. It's not just immorality, it's also being very, very moral, very, very good, keeping the commands, trying to earn our acceptance before God. Sometimes, in verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sometimes it results in pietism. Where I look at a verse like verse 12 and say, I gotta try harder, I gotta do more, I gotta be better, I gotta keep rules, I gotta make myself right and good and better, which is what pietism is. It starts as a good thing. Think of the Pharisees in Jesus' day who killed Jesus. Their entire sect begins as a group of people that want to live upright, moral lives, but they do so apart from a loving relationship with God. And therefore, they actually kill Jesus thinking they're doing a favor to God, thinking that they're on the path of obedience. Some in here are very, very moral, but as far away from Jesus as any immoral person could be. Because you trust in your morals, your standards, your religion to save you. As a result, it doesn't just go through, you don't just have diligent obedience or pursue holiness through doctrine and practice. It's also relating to every area where we make up rules and standards that no one can keep. Salvation. It implies you need a savior that you are so far gone that you need to be saved from yourself. Not only pietism, but sometimes, um, verse 13, um, it also leads to um, quietism which is the sense of, well, I actually don't do anything. It's all God's work, and I don't participate at all in the salvation that God has purchased for me. I kind of let go and let God. I, I'm constantly looking for a new experience with God, and if He doesn't provide it, then either I'm discouraged or I just give up and I'm frustrated. can't tell you how many camps I've been to where primarily, particularly as a high school pastor, where... The thought is, the way that I'm growing in holiness in my relationship with God is that I have some new experience and some emotional high. And if I don't have it, God must not be tangible in there and working in my life. It leads to frustration, it leads to guilt, it leads to discouragement, or it leads to pride. The gospel is neither religion nor irreligion. It's neither pietism nor quietism because religion leads to an, an, a, a, a philosophy where I feel like I obey God, therefore I'm accepted. And as a result, my motivation is based on either fear or insecurity. Also, in religion, Tim Keller says, I obey God in order to get things from God. And so when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself because after all, I've been really moral. I've been keeping the rules. Just as Job's friends were miserable comforters after they said, Job, you're going through suffering. You must have sinned, right? You must have done wrong somewhere. If you were upright, you wouldn't be going through difficult times. But the gospel says, I obey God to get God I'm not obeying God to get things from God and I accept circumstances and even times of contention and suffering in my life as although they may be difficult and I may struggle through them and looking to him by faith, I also accept it from, as from the loving hand of my father who allows nothing in my life for what ultimately will be for my ultimate good and he ultimately controls it. In religion, my prayer life consists mostly of petition, and it only heats up as um, I'm in times of trouble. Versus the gospel, where I pray so that I can extend my hands in humble worship and adoration to Jesus, because He's ultimately my goal. And in religion, if I'm not living up to the standards, I feel humble if I'm living up to the standards. If I'm not living up to the standards, I I feel uh, discouraged. Or I judge people because they're not living as well as I I am. Either way, religion and irreligion, moralism or hedonism, they're both forms of self-salvation. Both ways that I need to be delivered from. And in my sinful flesh, I can be led into either one. Both are forms of idolatry, where we take a good thing, in this case, like, obedience, and make that the thing that I'm seeking after, not primarily Jesus. Or we take other things, relationship, and all the things we talked about, and we make that the the pan-ultimate, the ultimate. So let me ask you, on the path that you're on right now, who or what is at the end waiting for you? What is it that you say, I'm on this path and when I get there, when I have that, when I experience that, then I'll be happy. Then I'll experience joy. For Paul, much of these things were removed and he's telling them, I want you to enter into the joy that I'm experiencing. I actually don't have anything. I'm actually on the verge of being put to death for obeying God, but I have God I have Jesus. I want you to enter in with me. Who or what is at the end of your path right now? Whoever that is, that's your functional salvation. That's your savior that you've set up. Are they able to forgive your sin? Are they able to save you? Can they change your will, not based on fear or guilt, but based on joyful uh, gratitude for what they've done? if it's anything other than Jesus or anyone other than Him, we've set up a personal, functional, idolatrous Savior. Questions like, if I lost this, would I be happy? When I get this, then I'll be happy. Those can oftentimes answer those questions for us. Also, even if, I'm, if I am... Um, acting in a, in a way, or I'm pursuing religion, I tend to be frustrated when my own plans are frustrated. Paul writes this letter, he's writing to a group of people that there's contention happening in this church, which often kind, most of the time, churches can breed places and environments of, of jealousy and frustration that are down below, that are underneath, but are masked by religious platitudes. He says in verse 14, "...do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." that grumbling, that questioning. It's actually uh, from the word murmur, which is, it's, it's, a, it's a double, its the word is meant to uh, be continuous and sound funny. Murmur, 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 murmur. That's really the Hebrew word that it comes from. And there was a low murmur within the people that were there, constantly complaining, constantly con- grumbling, because their agenda wasn't being forwarded, wasn't being pushed forward. Why? Because somebody other than Jesus is who I'm serving. Even though I come to church, I obey the laws, I'm very moral, I'm very upright. Now, we move away from that, the problem, how do we then follow God? How do we obey God in a way that is based upon the gospel? And it's, it's through the gospel that we can obey in a way that's not grinding it out, that's not drudgery, but is one of joy and and gratitude and willful obedience that's not based on fear or guilt but that's based on joy and gratitude in what Jesus has done and the goal of this path is ultimately to take me to Jesus that the path of obedience must be based on the gospel on what Jesus has done for me with Jesus as the end goal and I'm the one that he's wanting to get to. He's the one I'm wanting to get to. Otherwise, it'll be drudgery and a grind. So he's the end goal. And I want you to notice that or kind of see that this path is paved with faith and repentance. Repentance and faith are what saved me. As I see what he's done, who he is, I repent of my dead works, my dead religious works because God says that even your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You need a Savior to save you from you. I repent of my dead religious works. I also repent of, my, uh, of uh, uh, maintaining my own authority for my own life, and I come to Jesus in repentance and faith in Him as my Savior. And as we begin to follow and look at this path of obedience, there's a few instructions that take me to Jesus. Maybe four. First one is that you must accept and embrace your new identity. You must accept and embrace a brand new identity and nature. what it says here in verse 12, therefore, what's the second word? My beloved. And then he calls them, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God through repenting of my, both my dead religious works and my sin and my putting my faith in Jesus who has purchased salvation for me. I'm then given a brand new nature where I'm now called a beloved child, not just a child that God puts up with, a child that can question and say, why is this happening? But is doing so that I'm not, that I'm I'm able to come to God and ask questions. But I'm not always questioning and saying, why you do it this way? Why you got to do it this way? Questioning the motives of other people, judging the way that other people do it, because I come to Him in humility, in gratitude, in grace, and com- of, of God's complete mercy for me. He makes me His beloved child so that although I'm simultaneously sinful, yet I'm accepted by Him. And as a son of God or a daughter of God, God then puts inside of me a DNA, brand new DNA. I'm starting to slowly more and more look like my dad the older I get. 34, I'm starting to look more and more like my dad. And whether I like it or not, I can't stop it. It's happening. This train's moving. And, and I could cover it up, I could change it, I can mask it. But what's inside of me is the DNA of my father, ultimately. As you come to Jesus in faith and repentance, He puts His Holy Spirit inside of you, which the DNA that you now carry is one of holiness. He's making you into the image of God. Whether you like it or not. And you can do things to try to not look like your father. You could grow your hair out long or cut it short or dye it or, or you know, how, whatever it would be. But ultimately inside you are going to look more and more like your father. That's what John says in 1 John, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he's been born of God. By this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And for that reason, Paul says that we should conduct our lives in a way that reflects our new birth in, chapter, in verse 12 through 15. But notice in verse 12, Paul doesn't say work out yourself, or, work for your salvation. That's the difference between justification and sanctification. Big words, theological. Justification is where God makes me right with Him based on the finished work of Jesus. That's a one time deal. When God sees me, He sees me as holy, righteous, because I'm in Christ. All is forgiven. But sanctification is that lifelong process where sometimes I fall, sometimes I get up, but I'm always coming to Jesus still in faith and repentance, becoming more and more like Jesus like my father, because the DNA of the Spirit of God is inside me. So like two pedals on a bike, God presses the pedal, I respond in obedience. God pushes the pedal, I respond in obedience. That's why he says, work out your own salvation and do it with fear and trembling because of this gift that God has given and put inside of you. But notice verse 13, but it's God who's at work in you both to give you the desire to obey him and the power to do it as you begin to obey God, God's putting new desires in you. I saw this right after I came to know Jesus. I was out Friday nights continually, and then all of a sudden, I was sharing this with Brit a couple days ago. We we're going for a walk, and um, I said, dude, I remember when I came to know Jesus, all of a sudden I'm at home right after I turned 21 on Friday night studying Deuteronomy with the commentary." I wanted to know God. I had a new desire. I had a new, I, I, and there was a new power to want to obey him. And sure, we fall and we get down. But here's the deal. It's not faith and repentance that saves you. And then after that, you grind it out real hard. It's faith and repentance that you're saved by. And then it's faith and repentance that you're changed by. By faith, listen to this. By faith, we find God more desirable than anything sin offers. By faith, we continue to be united to Christ, the source of our new life. By faith, we embrace the new identity that's ours by grace. By faith, we follow the new desires of the Spirit. John Owen Uh, Puritan said, holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. The continual warming of our soul again and again to the thought that Jesus saves me, a sinner. I'm simultaneously sinful, yet I'm accepted. Does that warm your heart? Does that begin to change it? When they crowd asked Jesus what God expected of them, Jesus' reply was, this is the work of God. This is how you work it out. You believe on him, the one whom he sent. Jesus is the end goal. It means that we need a kind of reconversion every day. The first of Martin Luther's theses that he nailed to the door of Wittenberg says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. Believer, your path is one where you must accept and embrace a new identity. You come to, you return to the fact that you're a child of the Most High God through faith and repentance of dead works and your sin. And just as a father looks at his children and says, there's things that I'm calling you to, to obey me in, but it's because I have your best interest in mind. So you also, Jesus calls you to obey him. And as a result, we want to live lives without blemish. Verse 15, in a crooked and twisted generation. Verse 16, we want to hold fast the word of life, the word of God. That's the second thing I'll say is that the second instruction we need to follow is that we need to accept the, the authority and the scrutiny of this word of life, the gospel. See, you can, have, you can only have a personal relationship with somebody that can talk back to you, that can shock you at times, that can argue with you, that can challenge you in what you think, or that, that can build you up with their thoughts and their words. And if you go through scripture looking for only what works for you, you don't have a personal relationship with the living God. Your God isn't real. He doesn't have teeth. He doesn't have strength. Your God looks like you. And you can't come under the scrutiny or the authority of God without coming under the Bible's ultimate authority and scrutiny. And it has to at times disturb us, right? We come to the word of God and we, we look at it and we say, whoa, is, am I out of line here? Or it begins to encourage us and we say, I'm a child. I'm beloved. That's who I am. You've got to let that sink in. Sometimes we come in pride and it knocks our pride. Sometimes we come in humility and it builds us up. But a question to ask if, as you're scrutinizing or you're accepting the scrutiny of the word of God, the authority, and you want to learn, you want to grow in this discipline of where you're letting the Bible search you and scrutinize you and, 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 and search your own life rather than us just searching it for a few good memory verses. Although that's a good thing, we should ask, God, why are you telling me this today? Lord, in the verses that I'm reading here, where can I apply this in my life today? And if I applied this in my life, how would it change the way that I treated my wife, my husband, my children, my co-workers? How would it affect the way that I tend to be fearful of man or proud? Why are you saying this to me, God? And you're letting the word of God be as a mirror, and you're taking that mirror of the good news, which challenges and provokes and and, and encourages at times. But thirdly, not only do we need to come under the Bible's scrutiny and authority and also receive new identity and embrace it, We also have to accept the journey. Look at verse 17. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. How, how, How odd that is that we would have somebody who is really, really concerned for the needs of others serving them. He says, all the other people that I'm with seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with this father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and soldier. That's how he describes his mission. The mission of this man was, he was a worker, he was a soldier. I want you to notice that Timothy was kind of a pastor on staff type guy. Epaphroditus was just, he he was normal Joe like the most of us, like the rest of us. He worked a job, he had a paycheck, but his life and mission was about the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, and he used it in the areas where he lived. He lived. I've thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus, brother, soldier, minister to my need. He has been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that, notice this, he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. Notice this, near death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me. Lest I, notice the word, should have sorrow upon sorrow. Heaping sorrows. And I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be, notice this phrase, less anxious or not as concerned. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You have to accept that this journey, it's not gonna be long after you have obeyed You have accepted the scrutiny of God's word and his authority and your new identity and it begins to feel like an adventure that maybe you didn't sign up for. Notice it's in community, but it's not without conflict. It's with sacrifice, but it's also with suffering. Some of you are here today and you're saying, I want to obey God. I have obeyed God. But the suffering I'm experiencing, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like it equals it. And you understand that a hero like these men are to be honored is one that, in the face of danger, is tempted to turn back from his responsibility. But instead of turning back, he continues. He keeps going. And he gives himself to the quest and he doesn't look back and although the quest seems impossible, he continues on this mission. There's a perfect example in a book called The Princess and uh, Goblin by George MacDonald. And in this book, a a young girl by the name of Irene, she's eight years old, she's given a ring by her grandma. Her grandma lives on top of the castle. Irene kind of lives, it's kind of a ghetto area. It's kind of, you know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air status. And so, um, Although he lived in comfort, he was from the ghetto. Anyway, um, so she's given this ring by her grandma. Her grandma says, in the time of danger, when you're scared, I want you to take this ring because there's goblins that live in the area. Place it under your pillow and a thread will come out. Fill the thread and follow the thread. You'll find me and it'll lead you to safety. So she does. At the first sign of danger, she's a House is being there's an entourage of goblins she's scared she takes the ring places it under a pillow wants to find her grandma but as the thread comes out she follows the thread but it doesn't lead her up to her grandma's house up to her grandma's room instead it leads her outside where the goblins are and she's thinking this is crazy my grandma gave me a ring a thread I'm following it outside not taking me to safety it's taking me past danger she continues to follow the thread it leads her ultimately to the dungeon where the goblins live and where the the whole army of the goblins are. And she's saying, this is crazy. My grandma hung me out to dry. She continues the thread. She keeps going. Ultimately, like the story goes, she's led to safety. She ends up saving somebody else and uh, all because she followed this thread that she thought was leading her to a path of destruction. In the same way, as we follow, Accept the authority of God as a loving father and the scrutiny of his word. What's going to happen is that it won't be long before you start obeying God's word and his authority in areas like relationship, sexuality, finance, occupation. Where you start, you're challenged to tell the truth at work in the light of exposing a lie but losing your job. Or where you come in a relationship where it's an attractive individual but you realize, you know what, I want to obey God and, and God's called me to be equally yoked with other believers. That as you begin to obey, you think, this is crazy. I'm being led to destruction. I'm being hung out to dry. But ultimately, God is leading you to an end place where Jesus is the end goal and glory is your final resting place. As a result, Eugene Peterson calls it a long obedience in the same direction. When we think about obeying God, we think about obeying God in the crazy ways, right? Stepping out big, moving to some area, starting some crazy new work. He calls it a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, called it being obedient in the daily littles, the little things of the day. He said, when my wife died, I didn't find it too difficult to worship and and, and glorify God, because I knew that ultimately I was to bear this for the glory of Jesus. But I find it most difficult in the course of my day when my plans are are killed, when my when things in my life are frustrated. God's calling us to a long obedience in the same direction, following the thread for His glory, paved with faith and repentance with Jesus at the, as the end goal. And ultimately, we're called to accept the finisher of this race, the one who has completed this path. It says, it opens with the word, verse 12, therefore. That's the first word. And it's referring back to all those amazing verses when it said Jesus made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He died on a cross, the point of death, and now God has highly exalted him to where he'll always have all authority and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Therefore, not just now look at Jesus. He's a great example. It's saying because Jesus has paid the price for you, Jesus Christ followed the thread for you. Jesus Christ took the thread into danger past the goblins, if you will, death and hell and all of his enemies for you so that he could go into the cave and pull you out and save you. You need to see him as that, the author and the finisher of your race, the one who created you, will sustain you and finish the path that you're on so that he can be with you. That's how we need to see Jesus. That unless I accept the one who finished the path, my obedience won't be based in love. It'll be based as a grind, as a work, as a drudgery. And that's why the hymnals, the hymnist says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. I need to see Jesus as the one in verse 15 who is the one who's without blame and innocent. He lived this life perfectly so that he would make me innocent and without blame. Therefore, it motivates me to want to live for him. I need to see that he's the light of the world and then he calls us to be a city on a hill so that we don't cover our lights but we live in a way that glorifies him and points back to him, the one who was blameless, the light of the world. I need to see the beauty of who he is so I can follow the thread after him Lord we thank you and we praise you for your finished work for us God we want to embrace you and obey you Lord because we're accepted through repentance and faith in you and as you come up and take communion or as you worship on your knees responding in worship and adoration of him we do so repenting of those things that we've place before him even religious works dead works whatever has been at the at the end of the path we 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 repent of that and we say jesus you know you're my father god and we also rejoice for the work that he's finished on our behalf that he's made me blameless he's made me holy without spot now we pray we ask for his power to change our will not by fear or guilt through joy.